Welcome to the Winging It podcast. Um, yeah, finally, because uh, I've just I, I've been away for about three weeks, and then Matteo was away, and then we've not really recorded. And I think in about four, four or five weeks, so this is the first episode back. Um, so yeah, we've got three guys from the Pilot Networks. Uh, if you want to just give a quick introduction about yourselves, just so everyone everyone knows, if that's all right. Okay, I'm uh, I'm <laughs> I'm Baron. Uh, I'm from uh, Manchester. Um, I'm based uh, down in London uh, for a, a, a London-based uh, carrier flying the Airbus and uh, commute down, uh, did my training down in Brighton uh, via Integrated, um, took about just under a couple of years, uh, enjoyed it and yeah, currently now uh, out in Uzbekistan uh, on duty, um, I'm just landed this morning from China, uh, so uh, yeah, just uh, enjoying a couple of days off before my next rotation. Nice, nice. Uh, I'm Alex. I'm uh, I'm from the Midlands originally. Uh, I fly for a UK-based uh, low fare carrier um, in Glasgow. Um, did my flight chain in integrated routes, uh, and then joined my airline in 2019. Uh, did my tight rating at the end of 2019, but then with COVID, ended up taking uh, two years on furlough uh, as a bit of a break. So I'm only really just starting to sort of get into line flying. Uh, joined the line in started line training end of December, finished my line training in April, and I've got about 600 hours in the 737 at the minute. My name is Matt. I'm uh, originally from South London, grew up in Kent. Uh, I'm currently at a regional airline based on the Channel Islands. Uh, I joined the said airline back in the end of 2019, survived the COVID pandemic, flying uh, medical flights between the islands and the mainland. And since then, I've been smashing the hours, flying the ATR and uh, Almost got a thousand hours in type now. Um, so yeah, well experienced in many diverse weathers all over the UK and the Channel Islands, from crosswinds in fog conditions to glorious cavalcade conditions seeing the Channel Islands from the south of the UK. Nice, thanks. Um, yeah, so how how's how's life post pandemic treating you all now? Obviously, because during the pandemic, uh, I think it's pretty clear that. There wasn't much flying going at all, um, on the whole, that is. So how how's how's your life changed since the in quotations under the pandemic to, to to now? Um, for myself, um, I mean, I was on furlough, which was, I mean, definitely the best I could have asked for. Uh, my airline made the most use they could out of furlough, and um, you know, with very few redundancies, which is perfect because I mean, at the moment it is just so busy. Our airlines already surpassed 2019 levels uh, of flying already this summer. So it's really busy and we've got the staff there. And we, we haven't necessarily got a shortage of staff, but they're quite actively recruiting for the pilots. So everyone's as busy as kind of they want to be, which is good. Uh, during the pandemic, I, yeah, during the pandemic, I was COVID testing as well, just to keep myself busy. I got a role as a manager at a COVID testing site, which was massively different, different obviously. Uh, there was a lot of downtime there, so I could sort of go through the manuals and sort of remind myself about flying. And I had the six-monthly sim as well coming up every six months, yeah, which was well, great. Well, I was discussing yeah. with, with with Matt, obviously, before we kind of started recording about, about skills fading and and how it's affected um, affected the industry. Like, how, how different... Like, how hard was it was it was it for you to come back and to be able to kind of hop back into the the normality of of flying again? Like cause surely surely after two two years off, um, it'd have been quite difficult. Yeah, I mean the six looking checks um, are good because they do. So my airline, what they do is they do uh, every year you do your LPC OPC, and then every six months you have an annual refresher event, which is um, just training sort of non-jeopardy training sort of sim. So um, they'll, they'll put you in and often it's based on evidence of things that have happened on the line quite a lot of the time. So it could be little things like wind shear. Well, wind shear is obviously quite a big thing, but <laughs> things like wind shear or, you know, medical emergencies and all get them in thrown in the sim or it could be something like an engine failure. Um, and it also, it's also, a, so it's all this evidence that they've gathered and they sort of put it into this package. Um, each sim sort of puts you I set your limit. You kind, you kind of, um, especially someone in my position, obviously really new to it. Um, you definitely work hard for it. So after the 
after the your trip down to the sim, you do feel really sort of on it, I'd say, um, mm. which is which is good. Obviously, I've not really had much line experience and then going to the sim. So I'm quite looking forward to actually going down now and sort of seeing what it what it does for me in terms of development. I think it... Yeah. I think now that I've actually got the line experience and sort of every takeoff, I was saying, at the start of line training, I was expecting the engine to go bang. So your legs are turning a little bit. So I'm quite looking forward to going down. And was it, and was it in December, sorry, when you started? Yeah, December. And then, yeah. um, funny enough, my LPC lapsed in February. So right. I, did a month on the, I did a month on the line line training. Uh, and line training, again, is really quite tough. Um, yeah. Quite long. Well, it, it, uh, yeah. Well, I was gonna say because um, obviously, like the, as a as a trainee, as a trainee, like everyone asks you those questions. But the thing thing people have watched is the is the Easy Jet Inside the Cockpit series on um, on uh, ITV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and everyone just everyone thinks that's like the way. What's the what's the phrase? That's like the how everyone thinks it's the textbook way in and. Um, I guess I guess it's not as we'll come on to probably later, but um, yeah, I must say I must say there was an interview with one guy on it, and and he was he was very nervous on his very first uh, flight um, in terms of line training. It was it yeah. looked quite nerve wracking. I, I must say I must say that's when they did it out of uh, Liverpool, John Lennon. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, possibly yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head. So was that similar? Was that the same for you, Alex, when you were doing your line training? Was it of a um the people on board the aircraft and because obviously there's no passengers but i'm guessing there's other pilots at the same stage as you are yeah so i actually had some cabin crew experience um so I, that probably put me a little bit at ease because i've already been on a on an aircraft full of people and i sort of know the hustle and bustle of it so i can put that in the back of my mind a little bit um but the thing is honestly and everyone says it and it sounds like such a cliche but as soon as that door shuts it's a simulator and you, you just totally mm. detach yourself from it. Um, you learn a lot during line training. Um, and it is, um, obviously there's opportunities where you sit and chat about like politics or football or something, but there is the majority of it is, um, most airlines have like a line training syllabus. So it'll be like, okay, this, and you have to sort of get signed off in each one. And it will be um, sort of like, okay, today we're going to talk about cold weather ops. So, and, you know, and then the next day you're going to talk about sort of, using data link or satcom and trying to tax everyone um it's kind of weird as well because on a tight rating say you're doing constant takeoff landings everything and i mean obviously the biggest thing you have to do on a line training flight is really your landing and you take off and when that's the one thing you have to do <laughs> in a flight you really sort of pick it up in your mind a little bit so that's quite uh that's quite that's that was quite a weird thing because you're like right well, this is a simulator you know for fun like constantly and it's never been an issue but as soon as you've got one thing to do you really sort of and you've got the three-hour flight to sort of prepare for it. You know, it can really, you know, it's, it's important to keep your nerve when you're sort of coming in at the last hundred feet of the landing. Mm, <laughs> because, yeah. You know, how 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 similar are the uh, the motion simulators to to actually the real the real life real world uh, experience of actually flying? I'd say it's pretty spot on to be honest. See see when you a lot of people don't remember this. You wait, when you're taxiing out a full motion simulator. You get the cat size, and it it throws you, it it jolts you up and down each time you hit it on the uh, the taxi lights on the way out. So, yeah, I mean, little things like that. It, I mean, it, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty spot on. Each one's got is a little bit different, but I mean, all in all, they're pretty representative, I'd say. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool to hear. Because uh, <laughs> I used, I used, I used to be, I used to bash out um, Microsoft Flight Simulator. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of fascinated about how, especially with the new game, I'm fascinated about how. How closely, how closely flight in the game resembles actually in real life. I was the exact same. And see, during the pandemic, I was um, flying on Vatsim. Yeah, and yeah. It's it's just little things. I was I was, oh, you could suddenly tell midway through the pandemic that there was a ton of pilots on there, and that were that were actually flying as well because you you know little sort of terminology changes that real pilots use flying in the UK that most people don't know like. That are just there, like you really, I really caught, caught uh, sort of caught onto it. And I thought, ah, oh, God, every, it's suddenly just like flying out of Manchester or something again, like <laughs> yeah. it was that busy. And it's a, it's a lot of work as well. The thing is, one of the things people don't realize is when you're flying on like Batson as 
pilot flying and pilot monitoring on a computer at home. Your workflow is <laughs> massive compared to what you're actually doing in the real life. So it's, yeah. you know, it's a great skills boost. <laughs> well, would you say it actually helps um, to keep you like current, for instance, during the pandemic? Yeah. To an extent. I probably would. Yeah, I probably would. I probably would actually. Uh, I think it was, yeah, I think it was really useful. Definitely kept your sort of kept your hand in uh, at it. Definitely with the monitoring, etc., which is useful for me on like yeah, an, on a diff- it's obviously on a different level. But obviously, when I was was training for my PPL, I was I'd use uh, I'd use flight sim for obviously for handling. It's a lot different. But in terms of like the procedures of going through three D checks or uh, emergency checklists, etc., uh, etc. Et I think it helped me out a lot, especially oh, so PPL. Yeah, I I use my I use it, I used it for stuff like that because at, at the time as well I was I, my training was broken up by the pandemic and all the lockdowns, so it took me about a year to pass eventually to be able be able to sit my skills test. Um, so for like stuff like emergency procedures, which I think I think they're quite difficult until they get locked in your head, like until until they get solidified and then and then it becomes just like an, a recall kind of thing in the future. Um, it's like mind muscle, isn't it? It's like um yeah, literally mind muscle connection. So it just, yeah. you just, you just get used to it. It's um it's like um the flight sim. I found it really useful during my IR, like I'm instrument rating, especially when you're practicing holds and NDB holds specifically. So you set the winds, you set your heading, and you can practice your entries because our, our our school had the flight sim set up on the computer with two uh, iPads, like one for the uh, ND and one for the PFD. With the toggle switches, they had the bought um, like special attachment, so it's really useful in terms of you can you can enter the hole of the beacon and you and you can enter with certain entries, and you can write it on your plate. So we used to print out plates as though we were going on a flight, and calculate the winds from before we took off, get the winds off the Metar website, uh, BBC website for, for the surface uh, conditions and you know the aerial conditions, and write them down, calculate the gates calculate the 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 crosswind components and then practice it and it actually helps so much from you know when you go into the air because obviously don't winds might change when you go in the air uh whereas simulator ones kind of stay con- consistent to what you set it as but that whole procedure and that whole momentum it you get used to it so when you go in the air it's like right okay so i know how to do the procedures and it, it, there's like a familiar, familiarity, familiarity um, about it, and also it helps your scan rate as well. So when you when you're doing your takeoffs and landings, I found that it helps your scan rate with your speed, your heading, your pitch, your, your power, your altitude, and everything. So it, flight sim definitely does work. And I, I was I was told about that before I started training by pilots. You said you know for IR it was actually really useful because um, most people who don't really know much about aviation think it's just a video game, but it's not. It's, it's a simulator, and it, it, it's similar kind of computer system software that's used in full flight simulators but obviously more upgraded and uh, advanced but it's the same structure same principle yeah no i i agree totally like people, people think you're a proper old nerd when you when you say you play it um <laughs> like like the amount of stick i've had in the past i i guess i guess it's one of the things when you're young people just take the mic anyway but um like now at the end of the day, it's it's probably saved me a, a bit of money in terms of not having to go up as much as many times. So I th- I think it's brilliant, and especially the new one. We were discussing it in a diff- in, in an earlier episode. I mean, the new one, the new the new game. It's got like a an atmosphere that's that's modelled on the actual atmosphere. So, that, so a wing in a wing real in the game, time, yeah, yeah, a wing in the game flies like a wing in real life. If that makes sense. I mean, yeah, with the new one, I'd love to think what you guys thought because I thought going towards sort of my CPL sort of qualifier, et cetera, where you're doing VFR navigation based on actual points around the world. Yeah. I imagine actually having, you know, I flew the GA40 and I know that's on the new Microsoft Flight Simulator. I thought, how cool would it be to physically take off the GA40 out the airport and over the plywood and just do a VFR nav that I'm doing the next day <laughs> on actual waypoints? I thought, first thing I'm a thought, I thought, oh my God, that would have saved me like hours. I mean, I usually do it based on Google Maps, but to actually be able to fly it and have the yeah. timing semi-accurate, etc. Like, oh my god, I, I genuinely think one day that's where aviation is going to go. Similar to what Baron was saying about the VOR, I had an app on my phone, a VOR tracker app. I've still got it, and it basically just, you know, you kind of you fly a little VOR hole based off steam gauges on on your phone. Yeah, you know? I mean, I just used, I used to sit there at dinner bored because and just sort of 
midway through my dinner and just be like playing this VOR hold on my phone and you know <laughs> doing the track error etc. It's oh it's brilliant. Also, probably the captain of the week. Uh, he's a CRM trainer and he's got probably about fifteen thousand hours on titles. Something. Oh. Um, and he was saying during the pandemic, his son uh, gave his VR headset and said, look, I've got a 737 cockpit on it. And he said he sat there for hours just doing drills, et cetera, and just on his, uh, and he said he'd never seen the benefit of any technology outside the simulator for flying. But he said, you know, during the pandemic, he said it really kept him in it. And he said it saved, <laughs> saved him from what? just absolute boredom. I use, um, so I, I did a degree in, in aerospace engineering. And as part of that, we ended up going to a careers fair down uh, in London uh, for the, uh, at the Aeronautical. Royal Aeronautical Society building and they had um, uh, I think L3 had brought because they're a massive uh, I didn't realise but L3 are a tech firm I think as well and they'd bought a simulator but it was all revolving around um, using a VR headset and it was actually quite scary how realistic it was because it was it wasn't full motion but it gave you enough motion to kind of uh, appreciate what you were doing in terms of in the sim and it yeah and it was it was it was fascinating to see, I think to see how close we are to 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 some technologies that'll be able to pretty much almost replace the actual real training flights, if that makes sense. Uh, I do I do wonder if one day they'll turn around and sort of say, I mean, like the MPL kind of is a bit of a step towards that that a lot of these integrated schools are offering at the minute, where it is a lot more time in the simulator and the aircraft as opposed to. Um, you know, light aircraft, etc. Which some days has its benefits, some ways doesn't. But I can kind of see with the way technology is going, and with the price of fuel, the way it's going, I could imagine that one day mm. that will be traded off. Well, we would, we we had this in we had uh, Matteo written this had written this down as a point. What are your thoughts on the MPL? Like, I don't know if any of you've done it. I don't think so. But no, um, yeah, I've we've got some friends who have done the MPL route, and I think whilst it's great that you're linked necessarily to an airline and you've got employment on completion of your type rating. You go to it. I think it misses out a lot of enjoyable flying. Um, and I think there's something within the industry at the moment, which bugs me, which is a lot of people are joining because they want to have the Instagram lifestyle and they want to be able to, you know, put a 360 camera up on the cockpit and yeah. video themselves so that they can post it on Instagram and get loads of likes. Aviation is not like that at all. You know, if you've got the opportunity to do that, fair enough, but it's a hard working um, industry to be in. And I think when you go into your flight training, you should be able to experience really all the aircraft from single engine piston to multi-engine and then doing your type rating yeah. and build up all the experiences. And I think as well, and I'm not the only pilot that will say this, I think you need to scare yourself. You need to, yeah. you know, do stuff where you go, oh, I need to make sure I do that better next time. Yeah. Prove myself and be strict with yourself. I think whilst the MPL has a lot of, you know, I've, I've not done it myself. I went modular. Um, so I'm just speaking from what I've seen. I think it, it bypasses a lot of training where people build experiences and knowledge of different situations to be able to use them on bigger aircraft in the future. I think from going from a single engine to, you know, an A320 is, it's tough, but I don't know. It's, no, it's not for me. And I don't think the cost is worth it as well. I, t I, I look, my, my opinion is I, t I totally agree. I've, um, I had, I had a mate who was, was, was looking to go down the MPL route and especially with the pandemic as well, because this is a different side note, but in the pandemic, obviously EasyJet just ceased. Um, cause I think it's, it's with EasyJet, right? And they just ceased all connections. Was I don't know. Wait, he was going to go down the EasyJet one, and he was just saying that because of the. I mean, it's fair enough from EasyJet because at the end of the day, they've <laughs> they're not going to be flying anyone, so they just ceased all um kind of contracts or anything that was signed, and the guys who were on it ended up having to go down the ATPL route, um, which I guess the school that they were with. Yeah, I guess it's not a bad mm. thing, but it, like you say, the the different. Well, you guys probably better have a better um judgment on this, but it's. But by the sounds of it, it's it's, a, it's so different to doing an ATPL to doing an uh, compared when compared to doing an MPL. If that makes sense, with the with with MPL, from what I understand, is you know just just do a lot of research on it and speak to people that have have done it. But like like um like Barty was saying, there's there's there's, there's a lot of you know pros to doing the ATPL route as well, where you do a lot more 
single engine flying, you put yourself into these situations, like in reality where you're up in a plane on your own and you have to kind of, you put yourself into situations or you get put into situations where you have to really think really quickly. And it does help you in that. And it's, it's fun as well. It's fun going up in a, in, in a plane on your own and, you know, flying around busy airspace, et cetera, which you don't necessarily get too much with MPL. But there's, there's a lot of pros about MPL that I've heard mm. from training captains in airlines who have flown with first officers who have come through the MPL route as in they need less line training sectors because they're focused fully on airline. Yeah. So if you go fully airline, if you, like I want to be an out, like specifically for an airline pilot and you know, you've made the decision, you know, I want to do an MPL, then you're kind of focused solely on that airline. So you have that more specific uh, yeah. experience. Uh, because you kind of molded directly towards the airline, but you can get that with an ATPL as well. So yeah. really, whether you go modular ATPL or MPL, it can't, it kind of brings about the same result. You're going to get a piece of paper which is going to give you the says that you've got the training skills, you know, necessary qualifications, etc., and the knowledge to go on, you know, fly an aircraft, fly 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 an airline, and the airlines will give you training as well. So it's it's also easy. easy each individual on what training route they take. And, you know, like I was saying before, and I'm sure we'll all agree, just do do research and, you know, use all the information that's available and then make your own mind up um, yeah. and speak to people as well. It's important to speak to people who have done that route and, and, and have a good understanding. It aids it age your decision-making at the end of the day. And the more information you have, I mean, not too much information. Sometimes that can be like too many cups spoiled broth kind of thing. But if you have a, you know, balanced amount of information, then it will give you enough armory um, in the in 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 you know in the chamber yeah. to kind of make your own decision, which is I think is very important. Instead of having biased opinions, etc., have a, a different set of information, opinions, and kind of make your own yeah. mind up. Yeah, I'm quite interested actually. Um, the th- the thing is with the MPL at the moment in its current state is you're choosing sort of two years ahead of time. You know, it works. Re- it, it's, it it works very well in theory. It works very well that you go to an airline that offers an MPL, and in two years' time, they're still going to want to hire you. Um, which is obviously the issue that happened before the pandemic was people were joining an MPL for a specific airline, learning a specific airline's SOPs, and then suddenly, when um, suddenly when uh, everything's changed, uh, and you know the airline no longer. Need, needs the same amount of pilots you know they're not eligible to continue with that airline um one thing that i think one flight school sort of offered to the caa recently was an aircraft specific mpl which is quite interesting where um instead of say i'm going to go on an easyjet mpl or a virgin mpl or a Qatar mpl i'm just going to get an MP- i'm just going to do my flight training specifically based around the boeing 737 or the airbus a320 which is interesting because, I mean, there's no reason why that might not work because, you know, Airbus has generic standard operating procedures and then a company like Ryanair or TUI build upon that and make their own. And therefore, you could easily sort of treasure in a year or so's time when you're a bit closer to being able to sort of get a job. You could then sort of, you know, you hold the card in terms of what airlines you could go towards. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit difficult because it's kind of like, you know, going up to an 11 year old and saying, right, what job do you specifically want to do in 10 years time? Because, <laughs> you know, it can change. Yeah. Um, but, it, but I think in theory, it could, it could work. Um, I think it just needs a little bit more. I think I think the balls in the CAA's court with it a little bit, because I, I know the horror stories you were hearing about people paying £60,000 to change their license from an MPL to an ATPL. Yeah. Was, you know, I don't know what the CAA could have really done about it, but I think, I think you know, I, these I, people had a good amount of qual- a good quality of training up to the point where they would be charged. <laughs> so I've, yeah. I've personally heard stories. Um, I was speaking to actually someone at Aeros uh, about two weeks ago, and they were telling me that they've had a few people come to them from having done a P- uh, MPL course, and um, they just this is all right. We'll, we'll take you for a flight, or we'll see what you're capable of, and. They're not actually capable. Well, first of all, they don't have an SCP as part of the uh, MPL course. Um, but also, they're not actually capable of flying just a, a PA-28, for instance, or even even in the UK, just being able to navigate around 
just because everything, they said everything's so close together, all the towns, as if when they went to um, like New Zealand, for instance, everything's so far away. You can say fly to that town, for instance, not easy. Here, it's easy to get a bit confused as to, hang on, where am I going again? Or what heading or, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's um, it's kind of like having a license to drive a, you know, a bus as opposed to, a, and then not being able to drive a, a uh, you know, being able to drive a moped sort of thing. Yeah, um, it's kind of like a manual versus automatic thing, isn't it? As well, like manual, but you can yeah. still drive a car. Yeah, but you kind of, you kind of, if you've got an automatic license, you can only drive an automatic. Whereas if you've got a manual, you can drive both. Yeah, um, at the end of the day, you can you still you can still drive a car. You know, a lot of cars now are automatic, and you know you can. Yeah, maybe with them. I mean, coming through integrated, like I didn't get an SCP, and all my mates who did integrated didn't get an SCP with the uh, integrated, even though you do essentially a PPL with an internal skills test, and that, in effect, actually gives you the ability within the course to fly a single engine piston on your own. So you've essentially just done a PPL, mm. um, but you don't get the SCP rating because the whole part of the integrated is you get a multi-engine IR at the end of it. If you're an SCP rating, you have to do a separate flight check and you can get the SCP there because you've got the hours as well. So you just do a flight check and then the skills test. Uh, and you can do it that way. And so, and so yeah, it turns out I would, you know, loosely use that automatic uh, uh, manual thing. But again, like I said, integrated, I can't, I can't fly an SCP unless I go and do a skills, skills yeah. test and that. I'm quite interested in Matt's opinion, actually. Um, when I was doing my line training, probably the most common phrase you get told is fly it like a PA-28. <laughs> and I think the, the 737 was invented as an offshoot of the space shuttle program, which obviously tells the age of it, age of the actual aircraft. I mean, it's a brilliant aircraft to fly, and it is, you know, it's got a pretty proven safety record, I'd say, and it, you know, it works great. It doesn't, definitely doesn't have the automation that, say, an Airbus has, etc. So... There is a lot of learning to be done around the manual handling sort of flying side of it. And I know with the aircraft that Matt flies, it's the exact same, where the skills that you learn in a crosswind landing into Bournemouth really uh, really sort of carry into your career quite a lot. And it's just getting a sort of a, a bit more, you know, the sim, if you make it, if you sort of mess up in the sim, you know, you sort of have a, you sort of have a chat about it and you reset the sim and you try it again. Um, okay, so obviously, obviously, when you first started out, like, what was what was what was your inspiration in in terms of getting of, of wanting to be a pilot? Uh, oh, go on, go on by, go on by. Uh, no, you go first, mate. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, basically, uh, since I was I was four year old kid when I first knew I was on a plane, really is. Um, Kind of sounds, sounds cliche. You look out the window, you know, you see this wingtip of a 747 blue sky and captivated, you know, instantly. And then, you know, it just becomes an obsession since, you know, from then on, uh, going for airports. I used to go on holiday um, every year to, to India as a kid. So flying long call, uh, it was just became an addiction, really. Just being at airports just kind of felt home, being in the air felt at home. And, Throughout, you know, so I want to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot, and this is pre pre nine eleven. So I used to go into the flight deck whenever I can. Pilots usually uh, were very uh, welcoming and showed you around, etc. So it was really uh, interesting there. And I just added to it, and then kind of went to, you know, through, even throughout school, wanted to be a pilot. Aviation obsessed, flight sim. You know, like uh, like you were saying, you know, I you know hours and hours on flight sim. You know, in school holidays and after school, you know, you get used to get the, the mic taken off, uh, mic taken out of me by friends and family. You have pictures of planes uh, all over me uh, bedroom wall when uh, other teenagers probably had other pictures on the bedroom walls. And um, it was yeah, ba basically that really. And went to went to uni for a year. Then wasn't my thing. Didn't need it to become a pilot in in, in my opinion for me. So going to custom services, you know, going to aviation, ground services, cabin crew, and became a pilot. Yeah, so it's, just, it's, it's been like a, a lifelong thing and still gives me a bus to this day, even plane spotting and stuff like that, going down to an airport and uh, watching so, planes. Sorry to interrupt, but did you, uh, did you say you started off as ground crew and cabin crew? Right? Yeah, so uh, I worked, worked in retail, clothes store, I worked at a coffee shop, 
well-known coffee brand <laughs> for a couple of years. And then I went into, I did an office job for a couple of months, absolutely hated it and realized, you know, definitely not for me. So then I was kind of hesitant at that point. I need to go into the airport, I need to go into the airport, but I was kind of doubting myself as well. But then once I got into the office job, it was just like, nah, <laughs> did it for about six weeks, eight weeks. And then right now I need, need just, maybe this is just a sign to like take the jump and go into aviation. So got a job at Manchester Airport, customer services for two for like three months and then managed to get a job as a customer, um, passenger service agent, checking and boarding basically. And I hope you did managed- a better job than what they do now. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no it, was, it was a good team, good team. I was, I was stationed to the uh, Virgin team, and that was, it was really interesting. I had a good bunch of people. Uh, it was a nice operation there. So did that for about a year and a half, and then I got a job with BA as cabin crew uh, out of Heathrow, so I moved down there. Did that for about a year and a half. Got, got good experience, you know, made you know, a lot of lasting memories, learned a lot uh, of what happens on the other side of the, the cockpit door. I was going to say, do you reckon... Do you reckon- that experience, and I don't just mean being a cabin crew, I, I mean like the whole working in and around the airport. Do you reckon that's helped you? Um, obviously not during your training, but I think as you as you progress to actually uh, flying foreign airline or et cetera, when you're actually operating in and out of airports, do you reckon it's helped you in terms of in, within that respect? Definitely, yeah. It opens your eyes uh, to, to the whole sphere of aviation. So you, you kind of... You do have a lot more understanding, in my opinion, for me, on the whole chain from start to from from ground to, to the air. And I noticed it more so in terms of passengers, like they when they get on the aircraft and they may be stressed or etc. upset, you realize sometimes why they might be stressed. So it starts at the, the journey on the way to the airport, and then when they get to the check-in desk and something's gone wrong or the seats have been thrown out from when they pre-booked it. So you start to build that whole understanding and have a bit of compassion towards that. So then when I went in as cabin crew, I kind of have, have that in the back of my mind, like, you know, they might have had a bad experience on the ground, even before coming to the airport, like I said, you know, traffic or something's happened with a booking or something personal in, the, in their lives or whatever. The, the reason for the, the traveling might be something, you know, not, you know, going on a joyful holiday. It might, it might be something else like a funeral or visit an, an, an ill relative or friend or something. So you, you do have that kind of understanding. I must, I must say, I must it, say the whole, um, that, that whole aspect of, of, of aviation actually fascinates me because if you look at, if you look at, if you look at the, the, the job description of a pilot or like what you think he does, it's, um, they just think they just pull on a joystick and, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, and press three buttons words. and you just press yeah. it. But, but, yeah. but but realistically, that's that's not it at all. Especially if you go down to kind of, um, kind of the uh, like, uh, try to think like up in up in the in the Ork, in the Orkney Islands where the pilots find you from from uh, I forget what they're called now, but from island to island, he does the whole thing essentially. And yeah. and even in the airlines, I mean, a pilot a pilot's there to make sure, um. And make to make sure that 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 the customer's happy, which I find fascinating. And I think, especially if you've got a customer service background, I think I think it's invaluable to be honest with you. Exactly. It's, you know what? The the weirdest thing I've like, sort of experienced online training, and it sounds like a massive cliche. And obviously, I, I, like Baron, I had a bit of cabin crew experience. Like midway through your line training, considering you the night before, you're sort of nervous, you're struggling to sleep. You do your takeoff, that's going well. You kind of admire the view. You look around and think, wow, I'm finding the air. And then the captain hands you the PA and he's like, right, tell the passengers. And <laughs> like, you're just like, what Like, what do you say? Like, you know, there's no playbook. And it's just sort of like, well, what do you want to hear? And it's, you know, I got it. And it's still, I'm, and honestly, I'm still struggling with it. You're kind of like, you know. Do you, do you air a lot? Yeah. Oh, you've got to. You've got the good. Uh, you've got to. Uh, <laughs> you have to grumble. You know, you, oh, you've got to. But it's kind of things like it's like for example, you're coming into land and you've just briefed the captain on the landing, and the the first, and then you're like, well, you want to tell the passengers, or what do the passengers want to hear? And it's almost like you you know you've got to stop yourself from going. All right, down in Tenerife, it's just in thirty five and ten k two four zero. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you, I, I've, had, I've had I've had that recently. It's so tough. I've had that yeah. recently where the guy that, that you can tell obviously because. Obviously, because I fly, I kind of know bits and bobs. But like, obviously, when the, I think it must be the first officer when he's speaking to the to the cabin, he just the old thing he just used some sort of like pilot terminology for describing something, and 
and obviously to everyone else, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, why on earth do they want to know that? But then I just, obviously, oh. I've never actually thought of it from the other side where you kind of have to layman's terms it or d- oh, yeah. dumb, things down in a, dumb things down in a way. It's nice for an aviation enthusiast on board an aircraft as a passenger. You know, when I was a kid, you know, there's a few things, a few bits and bobs that are terminology and stuff that I was aware of. And when you hear the pilot on some flights saying, oh, yeah, we're going to be putting these four Rolls-Royce engines to take off power and steaming down the runway to depart <laughs> in a westerly direction. It's like your ears perk up and you, you start looking around, you're looking out the window and he's like, oh, my God, like, you know, this pilot's talking the language that I'm kind of kind of trying to understand here. So it, it does kind of perk the ears of the aviation enthusiast. And, I do think cause there are there are some people who genuinely like aviation on 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 most flights. So when if a pilot's allowed to make those kind of aviation related PAs with you know not fully aviation related but you know just <laughs> just the kind of words and terminology, it's just reason reading the matter. you know, it appeals to the the the, the, the aviation enthusiast that, that might be on board. Yeah, uh, the aspiring pilot that might be on board. You know, you never know. You never know know who your passenger what your passenger compliment is you don't know who's on board you don't know that kid that you're in, you've just inspired or just given that push to follow the dreams you, you don't know who's on board so have you have you ever had a moment like that where where you for instance like when you're a kid there's something you've you've done i don't know how to describe it as a kid when you kind of get inspired by something i.e for a pilot have you ever had that on the reciprocal now that you are a pilot where the kids come up to you and wanted to ask you questions or do you, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, um, you, uh, yeah, I was just going to say when I was, um, I actually had a bit of a negative experience when I was a kid, um, <laughs> which is, it sounds so bad. Wow. But I was it, 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 don't become a pilot. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I've actually had one of them as well. Yeah. Look at the state of you. Why would you look about it? But basically, I, I was actually about probably 15, 16, and I was kind of like pretty settled on the career I wanted to go into. Anyway, I was flying uh, from New York to um, to London. It's a late night flight, and I saw the flight that door was open. Captain was doing his walk around, and the FO was in the right end seat. And I mean, there was no cabin crew or anything, so I thought, "What have I got to lose? I might as well just go stick my head in and just say, you know." So I went up, anyway. I went up, stuck my head in, and said, "Look, is there any chance after landing or anything if I could just, you know, sort of come up and have a look at the flight deck because I'd never done it before." And the guy turned around and he goes, are you aware where we are right now? This is New York. This is some of the most strictest airspace and airports in the world. Like, please leave the flight deck now. And honest to God, that ate away at me for years. I thought, oh my God, I look like such an idiot. Like thinking that that wasn't something we were allowed to do. And now that I'm actually flying on the line, I still cringe at it a little bit. But the thing is, and I'm on the line I don't understand what he was getting at I mean I haven't flown out of New York but <laughs> if a kid did that today I'd be kind of alright with it but my favourite part of the job by far is when kids come up to the flight deck and they've clearly been waiting for this flight for months yeah down the day struggling yeah. to sleep because that's what I was like struggling to sleep the night before and you know they come up and they know everything about the flight deck you know everything about the 737 and <laughs> you know they're just excited. They sit in the seat and, you know, we can talk to them about it and teach them what they want to know. And it, oh, it's the, my favourite part of the job, hands down. Yeah. And it's amazing. <laughs> I think so. It's just good. Bart, it's fine. It's yeah. <laughs> Bart, Bart, is, um, Bart has got a great, uh, you know, uh, uh, thing to talk about, about getting into aviation and stuff. It's quite an interesting one. Well, in terms of how I got into flying or? Yeah. I mean, so I was quite lucky that my dad is a type racing examiner now at one of the the kind of big uk long-haul airlines i won't name which one uh so since pretty much i was born i've just grown up around him being at that airline um so that's like majorly influenced me um going into aviation and uh yeah pretty much like i used to finish primary school my dad would take me down to headcorn and go flying in the cub um just off school in my primary uniform so i think growing up for me i was always like oh yeah you know my dad's a pilot um you know i'm around aviation and it looked like a good career and i was lucky enough to go away flying with him quite a bit on some like long-haul flights so yeah around 15 years old i, I started 
getting into it. And I, I started on the Piper Cup actually at the uh, the Tiger Club, uh, which is not at headquarters anymore, uh, but it used to be. And uh, soloed on my 16th birthday in it. And uh, and then from there, moved over to Wheeled Air Services and flew the PPL. Got that when I was 19, just before I went off to university. Three years at university, studied international relations because I wanted to go into the RAF or Royal Navy to be a pilot. So I thought a degree in understanding the world and politics and foreign policy might be quite useful. Spent three fantastic years on the University Air Squadron, flying grub juices out of Cranwell um, and just indulging in all everything the University Air Squadron has to offer. Um, and... Uh, yeah, uh, finished uni, got the 2-1, applied for the RAF, failed the aptitude test. Uh, so my world just came crumbling down. But I'd always had at the back of my mind that if I didn't get into the military, then I'd go down the commercial route. So, um, yeah, found a job doing credit management, hated it, nine months, saved up from ACPL theory, and then committed and uh, moved down to Bournemouth, starting with my uh, ATPL down there. Spent a, it took me a year doing my ATPL theory in the end. Um just it's one of those it just took a bit longer for myself um and then after that finished went to Batbush to the hour building uh in the system 150 down there poland for the flight training uh mcc jock for the uh, out in berlin um and then got my job down here so yeah been flying the atr ever since it's fascinating to be fair i i i it's quite it's quite cool to to get perspectives off off um because you've all got different backgrounds, essentially, and you've yeah. all gone down different routes as well, which is, for, for me personally, like, where I'm from, I'm an, hour, I'm an hour away from, I'm half an hour away from Barton Airfield, which is a nightmare to get to because of the M62. So, Whereabouts do you live then? Uh, I live in Halifax. Oh, I'm from Salford. Okay, like... well, we're not far away. Around the corner. Yeah. yeah. Around the corner. I see all the planes in the circuit come over my house. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I think, I think when we were about inspiration when I was, when I was a kid, I think for me, it, it, it was that. So we obviously, <clears throat> as the crow flies, it's probably not too far, but where, where I am now, we, we have all the, the 380s and all the, it tends to be all the long haul aircraft that have come transatlantic, I think, um, yeah. come over our house and stuff. Uh, and I think that for me was when I was a kid, that was the one, one thing that, um, kind of tipped me in this direction but what I was saying is that I don't really know anyone who's in aviation other than when I first started to get my PPL so um it was quite it's quite it's quite quite cool to hear other people's perspectives um because I don't mean I, I've not I've not really met many people who are on the same journey as me I know Mateo is but um being based out of Sherburne you get a lot of um weekend warriors and and people yeah. like that but you don't really get too many um what you do but they don't really integrate within the show the, the, the only encounters i've had with anyone who weekend warriors or even older instructors and uh, they've always said to me oh it's, it's you don't want to get into it or if you do get into it the ones that have said yeah get into it but this is don't bother getting your ppl um airlines don't look for, uh, for like modular students like usually a lot of negative stuff if you ever do speak to them, yeah. know, which is unfortunate because it's not like I feel like the um, aviation industry in this country is not as big as it could be or should be uh, compared to, I think in mainland Europe is, is seems to be bigger. Um, even, even America, obviously, America being what it is and that, but I feel like definitely in this country it's starting to die down a bit or not be as popular as... As like I said, is it should be or could be. I think yeah, um, you, and you, you know as well with uh, the thing is, and there's such an air of negativity around aviation in this country. Uh, like I mean, go on, keep room. Everyone's been on it, and I'll tell you what, it will convince you that you're, you know, that it's going to cost you money to even think about flight training, and that you know you're an idiot for even doing it. And at the end of the day, you're not, you know, you're never going to fly Concorde, so why bother? But yeah. it's kind of like <laughs> it, it. It's crazy, but it's like. It's it, you know, and I just never got, never ever understood that. And honest to God, and I don't know what the other two guys say, but with my limited experience, it is as good as you think it is when you've got that career. It genuinely is. I mean, it's tiring at times. 
it's it's tough. You know, some with a lot of airlines, I know they go through a lot of stress in terms of sort of pay, contract hours, etc. But like, honest to God, all the the, the hard work, for the ATPL and everything, it's all so worth it. And a lot of people, I'd say, no matter what anyone told me ever growing up, I remember a mate's dad uh, that I went to school with. He um, met my dad used by the triple seven out in the Middle East. And uh, I was at a party or something, and the next night his dad came and picked him up, and I said, oh, can I come out and chat to your dad? And he goes, yeah, no worries. So I went and chatted to his dad, and his dad went to me, well, I wouldn't recommend it. Current climate, sort of terms of conditions being reduced for everyone in the industry. It's, you know, it's a really tough time to go a pilot. If I was to do it again, I probably wouldn't. And anyway, I saw him a few months later. <laughs> well, I saw him two or three years later after I'd, uh, when I qualified, and he was at, uh, in the crew room at the airline that I was working for. And I saw him and said, oh, how's it going? You're right. He goes, oh, so good to see you here. You're going to love it. It's amazing. Honestly, God, the job's amazing. I'm like, there you go, you see. It's all just about perspective. Like, you know, just because one person isn't isn't happy specifically with what they're doing or it's not as good as they, you know, it's not as good as it was for them 20 years ago. For people like ourselves that are the centre in the industry, honest to God, it's as good as you, you think yeah. it's going to be. I can honestly say that. If you've got passion for it, Nothing else should matter. You just follow your passion. Yeah. Doesn't matter what, really matter what the pay is like. And they say that all this, this whole thing going on about return on investment, like it's a monetary thing. Like I put this much money in and I want money. I want my money that I've spent back in this amount of years. Yeah, that is an important thing. You are thinking about that as well. But if you're in it, for the, if you're in it because you're passionate about aviation, that's the main thing. Mm. You will get your money back eventually. Like, it's a lifestyle. What you really want. Exactly. But yeah. it's exactly what you do it you know because you just, it's a vocation it's like it's like medicine isn't it it's like a it's like a vocation you do mm -hmm. it because you have a genuine need to help people if you're a doctor like pilot genuine like love of aviation and flying and you know flying passengers flying cargo or whatever and this whole customer service thing is a big element to it and there is that passion to follow, follow the passion and there, there, there's going to be negative perspectives on anything in life any kind of profession you're always going to hear you know, cons about it and bad things about it, but you can hear a lot of positives about it. Best thing to do is get information, do your research, speak to people, but make your own mind up. And you know, you don't. The main thing is you don't know if you don't try. Have, the worst that could, the worst, worst that can happen. You have a go, you don't like it, you find something else. It's not, it's not the end of the world. Mm. But that's, that's that's what I say, having a having a few lessons is important. You know, having a couple of taster lessons is good speaking to people in the industry, network with people, that's a very important thing. And, you know, get people's honest opinions, like unbiased, impartial opinions. And that's the, that's the main thing to do. You know, that was probably the best thing I could advise. Yeah, I mean, I think I think doing this whole podcast as well for us is, it's kind of about networking, I guess. I mean, without without this we wouldn't have been able to speak to you guys and obviously we're going to do it in a different episode like i said earlier but talking about pilot network because before i even as well as, as well as networking for us i mean it's also to get the word out to more people and get them involved in the aviation industry as well and so that they can see clearly what it takes and what you have to do i think we're making it easier for for people to find the information that is required oh that's the aim anyway for us mm. um but flying, flying has changed a lot since the people who are putting opinions across nowadays, like the, the, the more senior pilots, they've kind of seen a lot. But aviation has changed a lot since how, when they started. I'm sure when they all started, they, had, they were really enthusiastic and they're buzzing about everything. But now I think it's important, like you said, to hear the new generation's opinions coming through on and our take on it, etc., and hear what it's like now because we got a good perspective of what aviation is like now as a new entrant as a cadet you know as, as fresh blood yeah so it's important to talk to and, and the ones who have been in for like five or ten years who have, who have been you know come through in the past like five or ten years as well and they, they've seen this, this transition from the previous generation to this generation so it's important to get these perspectives coming through because then you're starting to build your own, you, you build a, a wider set of opinions. And I, I think for me, it gives a more wider sphere. In terms of like, when we're talking about perspectives, I think, and this kind of leads onto a different point, but I think for me is of when I was a kid, I was never bothered about the, the RAF. I just wanted to be an yeah. airline pilot. But as I've grown up, for instance, I went to, I went to Akrotiri, uh, the, the RAF base in, in Cyprus a couple of weeks back. 
And just watching all the jets go past and, and the lifestyle that those guys live, it literally is like Togman. I was I was like, maybe in another life, this had been cool. And then I was speaking to somebody else and they're on about um, how you can go out to say Thailand and do like island hopping out there on little Cessna caravans. And, and it's opened so, my eyes. Yeah, see, I think this is why um, for guys in, in your position, whether, you know, it's a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old looking to go into a career in aviation, whether that be military or civil, I think research is a massive thing and actually speaking to people who are in those industries and getting to know what the, the good and bad things are. You know, what you said about there, going down to Akaturi and seeing the fast jets and seeing it as kind of Top Gun. I've got mates who have come out of the RAF at fast jet squadrons, frontline QRF, and I've gone never again, never ever again, because it's just full on. And yeah. because those guys are expected, you know, if a state infringes in our uh, airspace, they are there to be the first line of defense. So they have to be at a high level of, you know, professionalism and flying abilities all the time. And that might have an effect on this, their social lives. I mean, one of my mates, he's he's left and he was saying how they used to have like they'd come back from a sortie at say three o'clock in the afternoon after two hours flying and they would brief through the evening till like eight o'clock at night and then they'd pick up the briefing the next morning because it's so big so i think everything's perspective and definitely speaking to people like you guys are today who are in the industry and can tell you for what it is the good and the bad is definitely definitely a benefit before you make that big financial investment and go yeah this is for me but even yeah. if you do, you know, you come out of flight training and go, no, it's not for me. Well, you've got some pretty cool things that you can do. You know, you're going to be IR trained on the multi-engine aircraft. You know, taking, if you've got the money, taking the multi-engine aircraft down to, say, the Channel Islands for the day, it's pretty cool. Yeah. No, I think, I think for, I, I think, well, Mateo, Mateo seems to fly a lot more than me. But when I get the chance to take my mates up, or I, I'm yet to set my family up because they're all petrified. But um, <laughs> I, I think, I think when that day comes, it'll be pretty fulfilling. Um, because I don't, to be honest, I don't think it's, I think it's sunk in yet. Oh, because you're flying, probably that I'm flying, but we, <laughs> <laughs> we move. But, um, yeah, I, I do, I think for me, it's still not sunk in the fact that I've passed my PPL and I passed it almost six months ago, which is uh crazy to think about. So, yeah, so I don't know, it's I, I'm excited, I think really excited, but I just need to go over the ATPL. ATPLs. I would would say um, just for where you guys are at the moment, and anyone listening to this podcast who's thinking, you know, I want to go into aviation, civil aviation, especially in the UK right now, from my point of view, is a really great time to get into it. Um, you know, coming off the back of the COVID nineteen pandemic, there's a huge amount of pilots who have been either made redundant, haven't come back to the industry, taken early retirement, or simply just got to the age where they've retired. Um, also, I think. Brexit is going to have play a huge part in it because UK airlines won't anymore be able to employ people from outside the UK. They need to have a UK license. And we've gone past the point of conversion now where people convert their EAS licenses to UK. So unless they've got a dual license, then, you know, there's, I think there's going to be a lack of UK licensed pilots in the future. This is, this is the thing for you at the moment because I'm, I'm so close to sitting my exams, my first set of exams, it's whether I choose to do to do both licenses in terms of, opening up my potential career options in the future it's yeah it's such a big call um so i'd i'd say do both keep the yeah, options open that, it might that's what i wanted to do that's what i'm wanting more to headache do. and you might i think i don't know how it is with the atpls probably should know this but um <laughs> you, have to think, you have to set two you have to set, set two so what you're doing like 28 exams yeah, well, yeah like 26 now, yeah the the both at the moment for yasa and ukca both the same yeah, yeah so it's the same syllabus. It's just sitting the exact same exam twice over, which is bonkers. Um, but that's, at that's the end Brexit of the day, you're, you're going to be giving yourself greater employment possibilities. Yeah, exactly. Coming straight out of flight training. Yeah, yeah exactly. The exams, like the flying exams in that, in European airspace. Mm. Yeah. I'd, I'd, re I'd really hope that the sort of, I don't know, uh, you always see that thing where it's like your career in aviation and then it's like the CAA pulling you back. But I really <laughs> do hope the CAA are trying to push towards it. Kind of one of the things that annoyed me a little bit about flight training is a lot of the times you're not really getting out. There's, there's, it feels like you're, it's you versus them a little bit. Oh, 100%. For a lot of flight schools. Yeah, massively. And it's, um, you know, and some schools are better than others. Um, 
hint, hint, pilot network podcast, whenever that comes out. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, yeah, that's the thing. We're impartial. So, we're impartial. We're massively <laughs> impartial. But the thing is, it, 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 it's you know, it, it's such it's it's such a difficult time to be a flight training student. And it was, I mean, it was difficult when I was doing it three years ago. Um, but like right now, when you've got you know the governing bodies are fighting against each other, the flight schools are fighting against each other. You know, you don't know what exams are going to be. God knows how you guys are doing it. So fair play, but like, no, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I had um, as I was as I was, I I just started training for my PPL, and 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 my job took me out to Cyprus, um, for for the summer season, and it was probably not too long after Brexit, like the official. It's it's a mess in terms of the days. I've confused myself sometimes, but trying to get trying to get a clear answer from both the ASA and the CA was quite quite possibly some of the stress most stressful times um, I've had during um, the whole training process because they, they just bounce you around from department to department and no one seemed to know what was going on. So, like you're saying, I'm hoping I'm hoping for the sake of people who are not even on the journey yet that. It, it, it kind of it's a kind of a bit more of a smoother ride for them yeah I, I was speaking uh, I think me and Jacob spoke about this previously on a, a different episode but I spoke to a um, business jet pilot uh, at an air show and he was saying to me um, that come the 31st of December is when uh, everything needs to be decided about EASA and the UK CAA and in terms of uh, licensing um, yeah. and he advised me to get my EASA license and saying that the UK CAA is kind of going downhill at the moment. Um, obviously, I don't really know that much. I'm just relaying the information he passed on to me, but he says mm. it's not worth it because even a lot of the aircraft, he said something about that you're not able to fly any aircraft that are European-based in the UK or, uh, without a European license, for instance, and a lot of companies are now taking aircraft and based them in the uh, European Union anyway, in Europe, rather than the UK, because it's cheaper as well. So there's going to be less jobs, he said, or less opportunities. So that's why he advised me to get a European licence. There's still a lot of G-Reg aircraft, though. There's an absolute hell of a lot of G-Reg aircraft and airlines that are operating that, um, the G-Reg, which you can obviously you need a UK licence to fly. The other caveat with an EASA license is unless it's a specific airline that allows you to live and work in the United Kingdom whilst flying on, on an EASA license for that airline, mm. um, not naming any specific airlines, but I'm sure everyone knows which. <laughs> and apart from that, if you go into a European airline, unless they've got UK bases, you need an EU passport as well with it because they do ask for the right to live and work in the EU. So unless you are a... EU passport holder with an EASA license, most of those jobs are kind of shut off, yeah. which is my understanding. Whereas if you, I've got a UK passport and you've got a G-Reg uh, license, it's kind of opening more doors for you in, in terms of a UK, a, a UK citizen. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm fortunate to be in a situation where I've got a British passport and I'm currently in the middle of applying for uh, an Italian passport as well. Yeah. Um, so I think I would be likely to get both. Lucky you. Um, yeah, no, I yeah, am. That'll open the doors up. That'll, that'll open the, <laughs> the doors. I mean, we, I, I mean, I've been speaking to different people and we're still hoping for a, a reciprocal agreement. And there's a few people that think that is on the cards in the future, that there is going to be something in the next couple of years that whereby you, because there's so much business that could potentially be lost. Mm. Uh, between, I mean, there's a lot of bureaucracy going on now. But there's a potential lot of business and that could be lost due to, well, there is a lot of business that lost due to lack of a reciprocal agreement. I think it's a stale war at the moment, but people are a bit more optimistic about in the future that there will be a reciprocal agreement where there's some kind of, you know, uh, joint understanding or yeah, like legislation that both can fly one another's uh, yeah. aircraft registration which would be absolutely fantastic for the aviation industry not just for any particularly any particular authority or uh, agency but for aviation as a whole it'll, it would make europe and uk stronger uh, yeah. in terms yeah. of aviation yeah. power. 
So, I mean, what you're saying is, well, it's, this doesn't really work for anybody. This doesn't work for UK airlines. It doesn't work for European airlines. It doesn't work for the CA. It doesn't work for the ASA. So, I do, I do hope they're going to come to some sort of agreement. I mean, over summer, uh, US airlines were hiring non-green card holders. Uh, well, were giving green cards, I think, to people that didn't have US licenses. I'm not too sure how Australia came. New Zealand. Yeah, which has pretty much never happened like this side of you know this side of the millennium. So you know it shows that they're really going to have to come towards some sort of agreement at some point towards anyway. Because I mean, your European airlines have always been, you know, have always have always shared pilots. Always, there's always been British pilots flying for places like Wizz, you know, yeah, Iceland Air, etc. It's always been Norwegian, for example, like. So I, you know, I mean, airlines like Ryanair, for example, have always had aircraft and EasyJet as well. You know, different ranges of aircraft all over the world. So mm. um, something's going to have to happen. I just don't know. Obviously, in terms of British aviation, they're quite. They tend to do things quite slow and take action rather slowly. So uh, you know, I'm sure we'll see what happens in the next. Yeah. In the next well, decade, maybe. <laughs> fingers, fingers crossed. Fingers <laughs> crossed soon. Oh, sorry, go on. No, I was I was just going to say because we're, we're running out of time quickly. Um, I was just going to say thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, I think we'll leave it there if that's okay, Matteo. We'll bear that point in mind. Um, <laughs> I'll write it down now. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're going to try and get a, uh, a another podcast together, talking more focused, which is more focused around uh, the whole training side of things and the pilot network, um, where there'll hopefully be quite a few more of us on. Um, but yeah, Matt, Alex, Ron, thank you very much for joining us and uh, we'll speak no soon, sure.